wide spectrum of interest in, in the teaching of the Lord Buddha. This is very ancient teaching dating back 2,547, 48 years. <coughs> and yet the uh, amazing fact is that it's also very modern teaching. It's very much, uh, you know, in the, in the interest in, in the Western world where before there was hardly any interest or understanding of Buddhism at all or ever since the time of the Buddha and the, the interest especially here in, in Europe in North America has, has seems to have burgeoned in the past 50 years in a way that uh, you know is quite surprising because uh, it seems like that the teaching of the Lord Buddha is quite unique it, it uh, in comparison to other religions it's not a theistic approach. It's not starting from a metaphysical uh, theory or doctrine at all, but starting from the, the kind of existential reality of human suffering. And this, I think, so many of us, this is what attracted us. It was brought into our minds the, the kind of fact of the suffering of our human existence that we became aware of that we couldn't blame on poverty or brutality or unfairness in our societies, but from the kind of dissatisfaction, unhappiness, discontentment uh, that we, we have uh, in spite of all the benefits of affluence and democratic government and all the rest. I became interested, I remember what struck me when, when I was about 20, 21, uh, the, uh, I came across Zen Buddhism, which was then becoming quite fashionable on the West Coast in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, and it became quite popular and fashionable to, to talk about Zen Buddhism. And you sit in espresso coffee shops and smoke cigarettes and talk about Zen. <laughs> it was all quite a lot of fun, actually. <laughs> and that was, the, that was the beginning, the kind of introduction. Or, and, but many of us were deeply touched by it, even on that level, something in us awoke. In myself, I considered it an awakening experience uh, because it wasn't just a, a kind of temporary fashion or just a a superficial intellectual interest it something went much deeper and from that point on from age 21 I've pursued that uh, now I'm 71 so that's 50 years of, uh, of a pursuit uh, out of this awakening experience when I was 21 thing that that struck me was was its approach being brought up in in uh, in uh, as a Christian uh, my parents were very devout Christians so so we were you know I was an altar boy at the church and my father was a uh, master of ceremonies uh, and they already trained the altar boys and and I went to church every Sunday <coughs> 
And uh, as a child, I had no problems with, with Christianity because uh, I just accepted it. And what the priests, what parents said, there was never any reason to doubt it. And, and the experience was quite positive. It wasn't that I had a, a, a negative uh, experience. But the problem started arising when I reached my uh, teenage years, the questioning. Uh, when you start questioning what, what your life is about, and what, what's the point of this, what's the purpose of that? And up to that age, I just accepted what the authorities told me, and did what they said. When I looked deeper in, I realized I didn't really know and couldn't understand on that level that I was expected to. And so I kind of gave up uh, and entered the military, the, the Navy, which brought me into uh, Japan. And it was in Japan that I discovered Zen Buddhism. And that from that point on, it was like uh, something touched the heart. And, and uh, even though I <coughs> didn't quite know what to do about it, there wasn't that much available in the, in the States at that time. Buddhist literature was uh, very rare in, in English, you know. So there were very few popular books, but nothing really very much was uh, one could depend on. I think there were like D.T. Suzuki's books were being republished. D.T. Suzuki wrote on Zen Buddhism. And then there was Alan Watts, who was kind of a, uh, a kind of maverick Zen Buddhist. And he used to be a lecturer or teacher at uh, an Asian institute in San Francisco. Outside of that, there wasn't much opportunity uh, except the, even that, on that level, uh, there was a certain uh, recognition of the value or something much more deep, intuitive, and real that I couldn't possibly explain just on, being a, on the intellectual level. So, fortunate, uh, life brings us many opportunities, and in the, the uh, early 60s, I... Uh, volunteered for the Peace Corps in the, uh, during when President Kennedy was still alive, sent me off to uh, Malaysia, which brought me into the Theravada Buddhist world, and from there to Thailand. And so I lived two years in Malaysia and, and uh, became interested in the Theravada approach, and then after the two-year contract, I went up to, went to Thailand and proceeded to uh, practice meditation. And I started out in, in Bangkok at Wat Mahathat at, in Section 5. And the Tanjau Kun there was, uh, had helped to establish the uh, Wat Puttapati Temple in, uh, here in England. And uh, he, was, uh, he was the kind of one everybody recommended to uh, go to for learning how to practice meditation. So I started there, and I had good results from that, and eventually led to becoming a monk. And after I was a monk, I met uh, Ajahn Chah, uh, as many of you, he's become very famous now, but in those days, 1967, he was, I think, only known in the 
northeast Thailand. So I spent 10 years with Ajahn Chah, and that was a powerful experience because I, uh, at the time, I couldn't understand what he was saying. <laughs> and and uh, he, didn't, he couldn't understand what I was saying. But uh, also, you know, on the, in a way, it's not all that necessary because uh, it's much more an intuitive process. Something in me trusted in him uh, and spending the 10 years uh, with him was a, was a great uh, privilege. In fact, I'm forever, forever grateful for that opportunity to live near uh, and close to somebody, wise, enlightened master. Uh, because at the time, you know, the I could learn just by living the life. Now, Ajahn Chah's emphasis was on just living a very simple life. Uh, he developed the, the Thai forest, tr what they call the Thai forest tradition, which is very simple. It's uh, you, you, you uh, develop the the uh, boundaries, but the, li the, the, the emphasis Ajahn Chah made, Nung Pa Chah, was uh, learning to live very simply. Uh, and of course, in those days, in Northeast Thailand, it was, it was not uh, materially very developed. And the forest monasteries were very basic. They were had absolutely no luxuries whatsoever. And so it was... Uh, a life of learning to live with just the, the bare necessities. And then the emphasis was on developing awareness, to be aware, to look, to observe one's reactions, one's emotions, one's feelings, and loves and hates and likes and dislikes. Uh, so the simplification of life that I experienced where uh, you know, just living in such a simple way. I didn't find that difficult, you know. You're coming from uh, a city, um, you know, a city boy, kind of middle-class city boy that, uh, <laughs> that takes for granted uh, quite a high standard of luxury. But the uh, life in the forest monastery, actually I quite liked because it was kind of a relief to find out you didn't need very much. That one could be quite happy and peaceful with, with just very simple things. And then the, uh, over the years, you know, uh, living there, of course, one went through all kinds of, of uh, experiences because uh, the simplicity of the life uh, and the, the restraint of it uh, brings up so many strong feelings. Being uh, at heart, a kind of rebel, a, a, a rebellious person, uh, even though intellectually I felt, you know, quite in agreement with the rules and the limitations uh, and boundaries of the Vinaya, the disciplinary code. Yet, you know, I could appreciate that on the intellectual level, but the realities of it were sometimes bringing up strong feelings of resistance and rebelliousness and feelings of being suffocated and, and held down and pinned to a cross. I began to understand what crucifixion might, might have been like. Because in the, on the West Coast in the, in the 60s, of course, life was, was an explosion of freedom, hedonistic freedom. Uh, enjoy everything that you can. 
And I always thought it quite strange, just at that time when, uh, where life was opening up to this explosion of freedom and pleasure-seeking, I happened to enter this very conservative Thai monastery. <laughs> and I think it probably saved my life when I think... <laughs> Uh, one thing, the, the, uh, because I had to learn also the language, uh, there was, you know, this is a process in which you had to learn to develop patience and, and humility because uh, even though I was quite well educated, I was really, I felt incredibly stupid all the time because I didn't understand what anyone was telling me. And when I started learning Thai, I could just say kind of very simple things like, you know, three-year-old Thai could speak better than I could. So, um, and uh, this was quite uh, challenging to the sense of one's the mature male and educated American. But Ajahn Charles' emphasis was always looking at this, you know, so you're observing the self, the, the ego, uh, the self-importance, the, the reactions that one has to the conditions that you're living in. His emphasis was always knowing time and place to to pay attention and observe, not just in, not through the critical mind by determining whether how much how good or bad or right or wrong it is, but how it affects you. You know how the system, the restraint, the the monastic form itself, the way people do things, how that affects your your mind. And I caught on to that very quickly. Because uh, even though I, I was very grateful and appreciated the opportunity that was made available to me, still it would the, there was so much uh, repressed emotions, uh, feelings of resentments and, and repressed anger, not from anything uh, that I could blame on the monastic life itself, but from the way I'd been living life before I became a monk, the 30-odd years that preceded my monastic life. Now, this, is, uh, this was my 39th Vasa this year. And I've been a bhikkhu 39 years, and that, uh, you know, at this point I see, you know, I really appreciate it even more because uh, I look back I think this has been a life well spent. I actually feel incredibly grateful because it's, uh, you know, as a man my age, 70, over 70 years, and you look back and you think, what did you do with your life? <laughs> and, uh, what have you, you, you know, because old age does kind of creep up on you very quickly. And it's hard for me sometimes to, to realize I'm so old. Uh, because you don't necessarily feel old until you look in the mirror <laughs> and you say, who's that old man there? And you realize it's yourself. <clears throat> so the also, the Buddha was pointing to ultimate reality, uh, the Dhamma, the Amata Dhamma. And this is, uh, this is something that is still very hard to understand for Western people. Uh, they oftentimes the uh, people approach Buddhism in the West almost like it's psychotherapy. 
They see it as a kind of psychotherapeutic practice to kind of make you feel happier or, or um, you know, iron out the wrinkles uh, to relieve the pressures of ego and so forth. But for me, I think also because I was brought up as a Christian with a strong mystical tradition, uh, this, uh, this uh, ultimate reality or the deathless reality uh, was always foremost in my mind. This was, this was what I was most interested in recognizing and realizing. I wasn't that keen on just trying to make myself into a nicer person or, or trying to make my, my life more pleasant, but in really exploring uh, and trying to find out for myself to see, because this is what is how Buddhism is presented in the West, so much as a see-for-yourself kind of teaching. It wasn't, there was no, no compulsion to believe or accept anything or just because it's part of a tradition or a scriptural teaching or even an enlightened master. You, you have the right to question, to contemplate, to look into, to explore. And this is what I found so attractive in, in, uh, in with the teaching of the Lord Buddha. Because I really wanted to do this, to explore it, get down to the root causes. Now at first, when I first became interested in Buddhism, I'd been interested in many other things before, I'd, in psychology and various philosophies. <coughs> so I had, you know, I'd, and I could appreciate the, uh, on an intellectual level, all kinds of philosophical ideas and theories. But at the end of the day, nothing really changed very much. You know, you, you acquired kind of interesting thoughts and, and had interesting views and could quote various philosophers. But actual realities of one's existence, it didn't seem to penetrate very deeply, at least the way I managed it. Uh, and so when I discovered Buddhism, I was wondering also whether that was just another pie-in-the-sky philosophy, just another high-minded teaching that wouldn't work. Um, but because the Buddha emphasized something that's so basic to human experience, rather than starting from some kind of metaphysical uh, positioning about the ultimate nature of life and, and trying to describe from, uh, the, the metaphysics uh, his, his emphasis on the Four Noble Truths. This was his first sermon, what he, uh, how he could convey what he'd learned uh, through his enlightenment, was this the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. Now this teaching is based on just the, the, the most ordinary kind of experience that every human being can relate to, about suffering. Uh, and because every human being experiences this. And it's not just, you know, the poor or the, 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 the slaves or the unfortunate members, but from the top to the bottom, from the king to the, to the beggar, uh, whether you're whatever race, nationality, gender, or whatever, I think we can all recognize that, that suffering is part of our experience of life. 
Now, the American attitude towards suffering was try to always seek happiness. So, you know, instead of, you know, trying to get away from it and uh, by trying to find as much happiness as you could possibly get and accumulate in your life. And, of course, uh, happiness is, is attractive and one likes happiness and wants it, longs for it. Uh, but still, as much happiness as one can have, there's also the recognition of its frailty, that it doesn't last, and that the more you desire it, the more unhappy you become. So the reference to suffering or dukkha is uh, the Buddha placed this as a, as a noble truth rather than as some kind of uh, horrible thing to complain about. He raised the, the human experience of suffering from just uh, something we're trying to get rid of or get run away from to a truth to be investigated, to be understood. And so, in, uh, say, here in, in uh, England, for example, many people misunderstand Buddhism. Uh, when you go to interfaith groups and the common attitudes that people have around Buddhism, oftentimes we're criticized. We think we sound like we're rather uh, depressing. <laughs> because uh, you hear, you can read that in, in, in people's, uh, uh, in people trying to describe what Buddhists believe in, what the Buddha taught is about that everything is miserable and, and everything is suffering. Now that is a depressing uh, teaching, if that's what it's about. Because that would be from a doctrinal position. And the doctrine's making a statement and everything is suffering. And then you either believe it or disbelieve it, accept it or reject it. But in terms of the Four Noble Truths, it's not a doctrine. It's a truth to be looked into. And so this, is, this changes the direction of us all from, from seeking happiness all the time or blaming our suffering on external sources, to looking at the, that suffering, understanding it, recognizing it, and, and, and opening to it, instead of just re resisting and reacting against it. So in my life, in uh, the early years of my monastic life in, in uh, Thailand, uh, the suffering I experienced there you know, because of the, the goodness of the life that I could appreciate, uh, I could see that, you know, you were living in a, in a very special situation with, with good people. You couldn't, I, I couldn't blame my suffering on anybody there. Uh, I <laughs> sometimes, you know, I blamed the mosquitoes and the heat. I didn't really believe that. Uh, because uh, I began to recognize that, that the suffering, the real suffering of the First Noble Truth is my aversion, my resistance, my discontentedness, my complaining mind. And Lung Po Chao was very good at pointing to this, how, you know, is, he'd, come, he'd say things, he'd, he had very good timing, and he knew when I was kind of ripe for some kind of insight. So he let me kind of fulminate for, for a while in my own misery, 
then he seemed to sense when it was appropriate, and then he'd, then he'd kind of zap me with some kind of challenging thing. What is it? One time he just says, Wat Ba Pong, that was the name of the monastery. Wat Ba Pong is suffering, tomato? And at the time I thought, yeah, it sure is. I, this is a really... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't answer him and he kind of laughed and, and went off. Didn't, didn't stick around to, f to wait for me to say anything. But I started exploring that. And then I realized... Uh, that my suffering was just my resistance, my not wanting to do what the rest are doing, my, uh, the way I just half-heartedly lived the life. You know, I wasn't really putting myself into the life at all. I, a lot of it, uh, a lot of the things that we had to do, we had a lot of work, work projects and, and, and uh, we had to do a lot of manual labor so I thought, this is a waste of time. I have no time to meditate because we always have these, these work projects. And so I, uh, I felt I was justified in this, in this feeling. But when I explored it further, I began to see that, that it wasn't that. It was my resistance to it. So this is beginning, you know, beginning to awaken to the cause of suffering. To, to how you create suffering, or because I may not want to do what what I have to do, or I don't want to be where I am, or I I want people around me to be other than they are. Uh, you know, the ideal monastery where everything is just perfect, where the monks and nuns, everybody you get on with, you know, your your friends that. They support, we support and help each other. We harmonize, we work together. We, we live in, the, in a place where we're all sincere, dedicated, uh, peaceful, selfless beings. But I've never lived in a monastery where that's been <laughs> present. That's an ideal, and it would be nice if, but the world isn't like that. One of the epithets of the Buddha is the knower of the world. And this was also uh, one of Ajahn Chah's teachings was he said, know the world. And of course, being uh, Westerner, I thought, mm, I know a lot about the world. I've been many places, studied <laughs> in university and whatnot. So. But then I realized his definition of the world wasn't like mine. Mine was a very external, kind of superficial world. And, and uh, he was pointing to the real world that we create. And it, it pointed to the fact that, that even though we were living in the same monastery, we weren't always in the same world, and which was true, because each uh, member of the monastery could be living in their own loves and hates, likes and dislikes, preferences, prejudices, biases, uh, their own sense of their self-importance or uh, opinions and views. And so Ajahn Chah talked about th the end of the world. He said, practice so you can see the end of the world. Well, to, uh, to a Westerner, this means like Armageddon. The end of the world means the final solution, you know, 
where everything dies and drops dead and everything disappears. But the Buddha's teaching isn't coming from that level. It's much more profound than that. It's teaching about what the reality of the world is. What is the world that we're really living in? And we think we're living in the same monastery here at Amravati. But we're not. Now physically, we're, we're here together, but emotionally, mentally, we're, we're, we can be so involved in our own feelings and emotions and loves and hates and attitudes. Uh, and then we find it difficult to understand each other because we think, we assume that we're all experiencing the same thing. So community life, Sangha life, is very, is very uh, powerful experience because it is having to live and share life with uh, a community of other people. And this brings up all kinds of, of feelings because of the different worlds that all these different monks and nuns create. I've noticed, and like in Chittirst and here at Amravati, the, the, uh, you know, the in terms of the requisites, the teaching of Dhamma Vinaya, the uh, all these are there's there's hardly any problems around this. Uh, people aren't resisting or, or you know, trying to challenge anything. The Dhamma, the traditional Dhamma, uh, and or the the uh, agreements of about behavior through Binya. The conflicts are always on the personal level. What I like, what I don't like, and the conflicts of that I have with around the personal personalities and feelings of others. And so this is where, you know, in terms of, of practice, we begin to see, you know, th we reflect on the way it is, on the convention, you know, it's basically for simplification, for uh, moral boundaries, agreements on how we're going to live together. Uh, our common goal, our aspiration for realizing Nibbana is the same. The... Uh, and so we, we have the same goal in life. But then the, the and this is important to, to make conscious, to really recognize the goal is the same. Uh, we, we, we volunteer, we ask permission to enter the Sangha. You, nobody's forced into becoming a monk or a nun. In, fa in fact, you know, traditionally you have to ask three times before you're, you're, you can be accepted. So you're not like we're kind of forcing people, holding a gun to their head and compelling them to, to take the precept, but uh, they have to ask. And so it is volunteering, you know, it's, it's what you're seeking. So you're willing, it's an agreement to live within the structure, uh, the tradition, the form that exists. And then from that, we, we can reflect on, on what actually happens within us during our lives in these monasteries. Now to me, the, the, the emphasis has always been on the, the uh, 
exploring, investigating the Four Noble Truths. And even though this is, uh, this is the kind of essence of all Buddhist schools, you know, whether it's Mahayana or Theravada or whatever, the Four Noble Truths is the, is the essential teaching, or the essence. Yet I find in Theravada Buddhism, not many, not many use it very well. There seems to be so much, uh, all kinds of other ideas about Buddhism that seem to dominate and, and people get involved with all kinds of other uh, ways of practice or views about practice. The thing that uh, I really uh, loved about living with Ajahn Chah was that he was really a, a, an expert at exploring these Four Noble Truths. And so this was a, an opportunity to really look at suffering, its causes, the causes of suffering, to realize the cessation, the reality of non-suffering, and to develop the, the Eightfold Path, or the way to live as a human being in this world, in this society, without creating any suffering. Now that might sound like very altruistic pro uh, probability, but it's quite simple, really, and, and it isn't expecting something uh, that's beyond anybody's ability. Because the suffering that any of us have, every one of you, uh, is enough suffering to understand suffering its causes. You see what, you know, how through ignorance, through blindness, through habit, through the force of habit, through, through pride, uh, greed, hatred, and delusion, we create our lives, create a lot of misery, and do a lot of unskillful things in our lives, which create suffering within our own and suffering around us, creating the, the confusion and mistrust and suspicions that generate into the society. And we live at a time now where, uh, you know, there is not much wisdom in, uh, in the world, in terms of the, the leaders of the world, the, the people that have the power and the ability uh, to, to make decisions and, and involve uh, the world's population in all kinds of actions. So the, the, the world now is one where, the, you know, it's, it's the, the population, the human population has never been uh, had so many human beings living on this planet at one time with the technology and the communication and the the uh, interchange that goes on uh, everywhere from every country every continent uh, everything's affecting everything and it becomes very apparent there's no chance to to live in a very in an isolation anymore becoming more aware of how much we do affect each other. And of course the, the, the wisdom then is to understand the suffering its causes. When you understand what suffering really is, rather than blaming it on the enemy or the opposition or the, the group you don't like or the group you don't agree with, you begin to look at, at within your, your own heart. You begin to notice 
the conflicts that go on in one's own mind, the divisions, the fears, the anxieties, the worries, the, the, the uh, ignorance that one is, is involved with through the conditioning of the mind. So the Buddha's teaching is about awakening. It's a, the, the very word Buddha means awakened. So it's a, it's a religion about waking up by paying attention, noticing, examining, investigating to see for yourself because no one else can do it for you. And the reason why the Buddha established a, a teaching like the Four Noble Truths because it is a teaching that, that we can, that most human beings, if they consider it, you know, and, and, and they, can re they can start using it, they can recognize it, they can see the suffering uh, within themselves. But so much of life is blaming our suffering on somebody else. So here in England we can blame it on the weather. Or we can blame it on the government. Or blame it on the, the neighbors. Or whatever, I mean there's always somebody to blame. And we think if, if we didn't have all the, if we had the perfect government and, uh, and if it didn't rain so much and, and then we go global warming, it might, might get, I've heard predictions that we might become like southern France in the next 50 years or even the Sahara. So we recognize that the world, the, the planet itself, is in, in the past year there's been so many natural disasters. And uh, you know, it, it, is, it is a warning, isn't it? Like a, a messenger telling us, this, the, even the planet that seems so solid, so stable, is not really that way. It's always in this, this incessant change in us too. And, and we can't control it. We have very little control over the planet. How to make it do what we want or how to make it stable and safe. We recognize that, that even though we like to think that modern science could eventually find a solution to every uh, natural disaster and, and uh, environmental problem, that it's beyond our ability, really. And yet, within our human conscious experience is the ability to liberate ourselves from delusion. And so this is the, the Buddha's, the, what the Buddha was pointing to. What he was saying 2,500 years ago in India. And so this teaching is a timeless teaching because it's not about ancient India or a culture uh, that existed in India 2,500 years ago. It's about a common human reality. And that it's not about culture, class, race, gender, or anything else. It has not preferences. It's not for an elite group, the, the Brahmins or the aristocrats or the royalty. It's, it's, it's about humanity in general all levels, all beings. Now the human birth 
being born as a human being means that we have this ability to reflect on suffering. Like uh, compared to, say, the animal kingdom, which we have an awful lot in common with the animal kingdom, uh, yet animals don't seem to have that reflective ability. And they experience happiness and suffering. They have very similar emotions. One reason why we relate to dogs so well in the human realm is because dogs have, we can relate to uh, emotions that dogs have because they aren't that much different from ours. So, you know, you, you pat a dog and you treat it nicely and you talk sweetly to it and give it good food and it looks so happy. And, and it's like me. <laughs> and you, if and if you abuse abuse it, then beat it, then starve it, and mistreat it, and then it becomes ugly and miserable and nasty creature, just like me. It responds with affection, doesn't it? it uh, dogs are noted for their loyalty and things like this. These are, these are things we admire in human beings. Loyalty and, uh, and that towards the, the king or the, the, the nation or the family. Sometimes they're capable of loyalty far beyond our ability. <laughs> we can be quite fickle because we can, we can think about it. We can think, is, is my master really worth this much loyalty? <laughs> but I don't think a, a dog would, would consider it in that way. Or looking at suffering. You know, so suffering is, uh, you know, th this awakened state. What I call the awakened state is when you, you suddenly realize, you know, the, the kind of unhappiness the the wor the sen the worry the anxiety the self consciousness the shyness the the feeling of inadequacy the fear of failure that is so common to say uh, all human beings not in my background kind of uh, spoiled uh, white boy from the middle class uh, you know these are they're filled with all these securities and advantages. There is all this worry, endless worry, fear, fear of rejection, fear of loss, uh, fear of uh, failure, tremendous fear of failure, of not being good enough. Uh, there is envy and jealousy and, and all these emotions were, were not just because of, of unfortunate conditions. But these seem to be coming out of ignorance from identifying with the wrong things, with seeing things in the wrong way, with the, you know, the conditioning of the mind that, you, that I had was, was, was reinforced this sense of self-consciousness and the values of a society based on competition uh, made your, you know, measure your worth according to how successful you, you are in life. So, recognizing this, the, the Buddha uh, said that suffering then is to be understood. 
So this is, to understand it, you have to accept it. Not, not just in a passive, negative way, but really turn to it, welcome it, examine it. What is this suffering, this feeling of anxiety, feeling of self-consciousness, fear, uh, jealousy, uh, greed, or whatever the emotion might be? And to know it is the way it is. You're looki looking at it in terms of awareness is not a judge judging it in terms of it's good or bad, but recognizing this first noble truth. So then the causes of suffering are, are based on the ignorance of this truth and the attachments to the desires that we create. So we, we have, this is a desire realm, the body is a desire body, the sensual world that we live in is has all the attractions and repulsions, pleasures and pains that are part of this realm. And so the desire generates from ignorance, not understanding the realm we're living in. Uh, and so we're caught in always trying to get something we don't have or get rid of things we have that we don't like. And by observing this desire, like one can witness and observe desire and this observing, this witnessing, is what the Buddha called sati panya, or mindfulness wisdom, or sati sampachanya. Sampachanya is like intuitive awareness, it's the ability to, to really embrace the moment, to be aware of it in a, in a whole way, rather than just caught in reactiveness to the pleasure pain of the, of the present moment. So this is, this is why in the human realm uh, this teaching is most appropriate for human beings. Even the animals in the monastery, we have cats here and I know many of the nuns and the monks try to, try to uh, train the cats with moral precepts <laughs> and they've never succeeded. They, how would you feel if you were, if, if a big mouse was chasing you, you <laughs> and the cat doesn't seem to have the ability to comprehend that. <laughs> because uh, animals are, they are what they are, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But uh, the ability to learn and reflect in this way seems to be specialty of the, of the human realm. And so that's why Buddhas take on human forms, like the uh, Prince Siddhartha, the ascetic Gautama, the Buddha, was an actual human being. He wasn't a, a kind of uh, deva or angel or divine figure that descended on earth to save us. It was an actual human being that had the same uh, capabilities, same problems as any other human being but could develop that awakened state of consciousness that is available to all of us. It just needs pointing out. We need to be encouraged to develop it uh, because it's so easy to forget it or overlook it or miss, miss it in some way. The urgencies of modern life, the pressures and the stress that we have in, in modern life is are, you know, so overwhelming to our consciousness. 
that we hear at Amravati all the time people talk about how stressful their lives are. Uh, and with all the high tech and, and, and the, you know, to make life more instant, more immediate. You don't have to go down to the river and scrub your clothes anymore. You've got it. all these washing machines and everything. Go to uh, third world countries, you find people, you know, having to wash their clothes in the river. But they seem to have more time sometimes than we do. Because the more free time we have, the more we fill it up with other things. And so, so modern life is, uh, seems to be, uh, we've perfected the art of dis uh, instant distraction. They say the attention span of children these days is, is uh, getting less and less because of the, the, just the, how instantly we can distract ourselves. There's no need to stay with anything very long. In monastic life, the, the, the commitment to it does help because like anything, uh, you know, you, you, we usually enter it when inspired and, um, you know, we, we want to give ourselves to it. We, we feel this uh, respect and love for the life. But anything, any conventional form, anything else gets wearisome after a while. And you get bored with it. And, uh, but that still the suffering is, is a part of that, isn't it? The monastic life is aimed at making life very simple. And simpli simplicity is quite boring. Especially if you're living in a society where there's so many opportunities for excitement and extreme emotional experiences. But because of the, the teaching itself, this encouragement to awaken, awakenness, to observe, to learn. You, you even welcome the boredom, the disillusionment, the, uh, the aversion or the resistance. And as you trust in your awareness, in the awakened consciousness, that then is the, is the escape from the condition, conditioning of the mind and body. So this uh, ultimate truth, the Amata Dhamma, is a fact, it's re realizable, it's reality, but it's not noticed, not recognized, because of our blindness, our, the force of our habits, our ignorance, we're always seeking distractions, identifying and, and uh, giving the conditioned realm so much of our attention, and committed to so many conditions that the reality of the unconditioned is lost or forgotten or not recognized. So today it was a chance for you all to come and hear this reflection, encouragement towards uh, uh, awareness, uh, also to, to just express my appreciation for um, all the support and uh, interest, the Sangha here in England is, is uh, maturing. It's, uh, you know, I'm very pleased with it and, and uh, one feels that, that uh, it's been well worth the while to, to establish Buddhist monasteries here in, in England. And, uh, it's not been easy, like anything, you're taking something from, from another country 
and trying to make it work in this one and all the unknown factors of how to support it you know because the vineyard we can't have we can't hold money or anything so i thought when i first considered coming here i thought how am i going to make a living now you know i couldn't imagine english people coming up and offering food in a <laughs> and uh, it's the idea my my perspective my perceptions of the west sometimes i you know i didn't understand that the basic goodness of humanity that ajahn shah had he had so much faith in the basic goodness of humanity that he said don't worry about that it'll take care of itself <laughs> Well, he's never lived there. He wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> but he was right because he did. He did understand that. He, you know, it was an intuition. It wasn't just based on on Thailand, but on human nature. And and that basically, this is you know the joy and goodness of our lives. Uh, opportunities like this, like the Katina ceremonies, or the. Uh, uh, Misaka Puja, the celebrations, the, the retreats, all these opportunities give people uh, a chance to participate. And so we aren't just living a kind of isolated, cloistered life in a monastery unrelated to the lay community. And our life very much depends, our basic uh, existence depends on, on the goodness and kindness of the lay community. So to let you know how much we appreciate that, and that uh, the, uh, the, uh, the the sanghas, like anything else, have their expansions and contractions. So sometimes the the disrobings and the depressing periods of monastic life happen, but that's just part of the the pattern, you know. Is things like all conventions, some people. Can can endure some can't. Uh, for me, I'm very grateful that I endure it, <laughs> because uh, the benefits are uh, are very wonderful from from having uh, developed a way of looking at life that would never have happened. I don't think if I hadn't encountered the teaching of the Lord Buddha. So I offer this as a reflection for today.